If cheese is an issue for you, set it aside. Don't have it at all, period, zero. That sounds harsh. So the way to make it workable is focus on the short term. Just take, say, three weeks. All right, I think I can do that. And you'll discover that you end up being turned off by cheese. You'll you'll discover you don't want it anymore. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us in more than 130 countries around the world and healthy cities coast to coast in the U.S. Biloxi, Mississippi, Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Pueblo, Colorado. We appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 10 of season 5, number 309 overall. What is it about cheese that makes it so doggone addictive? Whether it's cheddar or Swiss or mozzarella, even better, whatever the type of cheese, there's just something about it that makes you crave it day and night. You gotta have it. So is it true that cheese kind of is like a mild drug? It has opioid-like compounds that can get you hooked. Well, we are going to find out today, and more importantly, we're also going to learn how you can break this potential addiction, how you can just say no to queso and get its hooks out of your diet once and for all. Cheese addiction specialist and best-selling author of the book, The Cheese Trap, Dr. Neil Barnard is here with all of the answers, and we're also going to be opening up the doctor's mailbag and examining whatever else is on your mind when it comes to health and nutrition. We have so many great questions from the exam room live, questions about vegan cheeses and whether they are as addictive as their full-fledged cousins. And then we have questions about the different types of dairy-free milk. Is one healthier than the other? Also, olive oil, protein, and the different types of fat in your diet and the role that they can play in your cholesterol plus non-toxic cookware. What's the best? We're going to find that out and so much more. Also today, breaking news in the medical world. You could call this historic research because a new study is looking at the influence that meat has on brain development. And this data traces all the way back to early man. Now, many experts believe that meat is responsible for human evolution, but this new research pumps the brakes on that notion and calls into question meat's role in everything from brain development to our physical size. Details on this research coming up in just a bit. But I want to take a minute right now to tell you a little bit about the Gregory J. Ryder Memorial Fund, which is making today's episode of The Exam Room possible. Greg Ryder's love for animals was unrivaled, and today the fund in his honor is dedicated to supporting organizations like the Physicians Committee that share that same passion, that same love that Greg had, and they're doing it through animal rescue efforts and by promoting a vegan lifestyle and even wildlife conservation. Visit GregoryRyderFund.org. That's Gregory, R-E-I-T-E-R, Fund.org to learn more about Greg's story and about the animal issues they are currently working on. And while you're there, you can also subscribe to their newsletter. A link to that website can be found right now in the episode notes. Time now to talk about dairy crack and why cheese is so silly addictive and how you can kick the cheese habit once and for all. That is where we start with today's Q&A from The Exam Room Live featuring Dr. Neil Barnard. 
sir. Good to see you. Let me get right to it. What is it about cheese that makes it so doggone addictive? Well, really three things. Um, a couple of obvious things. People love anything that's salty and greasy. Potato chips, onion rings, French fries. That salty, greasy combination grabs us. And if you look at cheese, you don't think of it as being necessarily salty or greasy, but the fat content, the grease content, 70% of calories. And there is more sodium, salt, in cheese than there is in potato chips. Exactly. Um, huge amount. It's, it's added in the cheese making process as a way to flavor it up, but also to keep the fermentation process from going too far. They add the sodium to it and that knocks out the bacteria so they don't over ferment. So that's the first part. But the big part, and Chuck, you were kind of hinting at this earlier. Is there something in cheese? Is there some compound in cheese? Yes, there is. And the word is casomorphins, uh, casine derived morphine like compounds. Casein is the dairy protein. You'll, you'll see it on food labels, C-A-S-E-I-N, casein. It's the dairy protein. When it comes out of the cow, the, the, the proteins are long strands of amino acids. And in the calf's digestive tract, it breaks apart and it releases these casomorphin molecules that are, in fact, in the chemical class of narcotics, opiates. By that, I mean they go to the calf's brain and they attach to the very same receptor that any opiate or narcotic would attach. Uh, and scientists speculate that this is part of the, maybe called the mother-infant bond um, or kind of a calming um, effect on a nervous breastfeeding baby. Uh, it's in human milk too. And mother nature never imagined that an adult would keep drinking milk or make it into cheese. And the reason that cheese is more addicting than yogurt or milk is because the casomorphins are concentrated. As you turn milk uh, into cheese, there it cheese becomes sort of dairy crack, if I can put it that way. Um, it's it's not as strong as say heroin, but it's about um, the, uh, the the strongest casomorphins have about one tenth the brain receptor binding power compared to pharmacy grade morphine. So not enough to get you arrested, but more than enough to keep you hooked. And that is why people say, oh, I could be vegan except for the cheese. Or um, is there a little chamomile in my refrigerator? <laughs> it's, it's, they don't know the word casomorphin, but that's what their body is craving. It's it's silly. And, and even though you're talking about just 10 percent, I mean, that's still a lot when you're talking about the power that those opiates have that have that full 100 percent. And just 10 percent of that is plenty enough to get your hook stuck in there. And I mean, the chat has already lit up with people talking about this. It's it's really a phenomenon. Uh, Colleen at 1204 saying the cheese trap is the book that got me off of cheese once and for all. She says that she is forever grateful and would recommend that book to anybody who is struggling with cheese addiction. And that group of people who are still struggling includes Shannon, who has today's first question. She's like, okay, so now we know that cheese is addictive. What advice do you have, Dr. Barnard, for breaking cheese? addiction? Oh, well, what a great question. And you know, this is something that we see in every research study we do. People with diabetes or weight problems or menopausal symptoms, when they begin a plant-based diet and cheese isn't part of it, and, I mean, neither is chicken and fish and these things, they don't really miss the meat. They don't miss the chicken or the fish. They don't miss the eggs. Um, but they do say, gee, you know, I'd really love to have some cheese. And it does show the addictive part of it. So we do a couple of things. Number one, and this sounds a little harsh, but, but let me suggest it anyway. Don't cheat. 
The reason I say that is every smoker learns that it is harder to cut down than it is to quit. If you dangle in front of yourself something that you have been addicted to, you never forget it. It's reawakening those old memories. And anybody who has dealt with addictions, which I think is, frankly, 100% of humanity when you look at all the foods that you can get hooked on, um, we just realize it's, it's easier to let yourself kind of forget it. So, so if, if cheese is an issue for you, set it aside. Don't have it at all, period, zero. That sounds harsh. So the way to make it workable is focus on the short term. Just take, say, three weeks. Okay, breathe. The next three weeks, I'm not going to have any cheese. All right, I think I can do that. At the end of that time, your taste buds have started to adjust. But if you had cheese even once a week, it comes back. Secondly, um, think of substitutes. And here, nutritional yeast is your big friend. If you never had it, go to the store, uh, health food stores. They sell nutritional yeast. You got to push aside the bodybuilders who, who are getting nutritional yeast for its protein content. But you get it because it is, it is cheese, basically. Um, it's, it's not cheese, but it tastes just like it. Put it on your pizza. Um, put it in um, a stew or something like that. It's used in mac and cheese recipes without real cheese. So nutritional yeast is good. There are vegan cheeses out there. Have them if you want. Skip the coconut oil-based ones. Choose the nut-based ones. They're healthier for you. Uh, but even those, as time goes on, you'll find you're just moving away from. So give it a shot. See what you can do. And you'll discover that you end up being turned off by cheese. You'll just you'll discover you don't want it anymore. And, and, and let's kind of delve a little bit deeper into that. You just mentioned some of those alternatives. Tamala is wondering whether those dairy-free alternatives can be less addictive because there aren't going to be the casomorphines in there. But if you flip it over, you look at the nutrition labels, there's still an awful lot of fat and sodium in there. There is. No, it's a better kind, it's a better kind of fat. It's less saturated fat, typically. Um, if you choose to choose, say, a cashew cheese, it's it's uh, less of the saturated fat that's in um, that's in the dairy cheeses. If you choose a coconut based, coconut oil based uh, cheese, it's I mean it's vegan, but it's really high in saturated fat. So I, I would not choose those. To tell you the honest truth, the other piece of this though that once people learn where cheese comes from and they realize that all dairy products involve artificially inseminating mom taking your calf away at birth so that we can have the milk instead of the calf, killing all the males for veal, um, killing even the dairy cows themselves after about four or five years because their production doesn't continue as high. People just get turned off about dairy. Um, it, it, it becomes something you just sort of don't want for ethical reasons anymore. And, and I think that that's, you know, I'm a doctor, obviously, and so we speak about health, but I found that so, for so many people, when they look what, what's, what it takes to get one of these foods to your plate, uh, like cheese or foie gras or something, you're thinking, you know, maybe, maybe I can skip that one and, and uh, the world will be a better place. Here's an interesting question from Rosa at 1206. She says, ice cream got the best of me last summer after being vegan for four years. She's wondering whether those casomorphines exist in other dairy foods aside from cheese. They do. Um, they're not as concentrated. Uh, cheese is the dairy crack, as I say, it's got the most, and that's because it goes with the protein. So uh, cheese has more than ice cream, but with ice cream, what are they doing? What, what are they doing? They are making it not so much a savory as a sweet. So yes, there is casomorphins. In this case, it's not salty, it's sugary. So now they're hitting your sugar addiction and your casomorphin addiction at the same time with ice cream.
All right. A little bit ago, you were talking about saturated fat, and Mag is wondering about just that. She's wondering whether saturated fat is the only fat that can raise cholesterol in your diet. Uh, it's it's really the only one that matters. Uh, fats are always mixtures. So chicken fat has, oh, maybe 30% of the chicken fat is saturated. And then the other 70% is a big mixture of various kinds of unsaturated fats. And the one that the, your question is, is the saturated fat the bad actor? The answer is yes. Um, and that's why people like olive oil, because it's only 14% uh, saturated fat. Or it's why somebody like me says, how about no oil at all? And then you knock that number down to zero. All right, olive oil, man. See, now that just triggers another question. I want to dive into a leftover from last week's show. Uh, Cindy watched and she's like, I'm still confused about olive oil. She wants to know whether the type of olive oil, in this case, extra virgin olive oil, makes it a healthier option compared to other olive oils. Only very slightly. Um, the champions for extra virgin olive oil um, will talk about the fact that it is it hasn't been refined to the extent that the other olive oil uh, products have been. And so what they're bragging about here isn't so much differences in the fat content, but the fact that there are other biological, really phytonutrients that are there. And so the assumption is that those are healthier for you than, than beef fat, than bacon fat, than fish fat. That's all true. Um, the reason that we're cautious about that too is that all fats have nine calories in every single gram. So that's why when people go Mediterranean, it's a little bit, it's better for your heart than a, an unmodified diet, but not even remotely as good as a vegan diet. And it doesn't cause weight loss at all. Mediterranean diets are just, they're just a complete failure when it comes to lowering uh, body weight. And really they don't lower cholesterol much either. And that's because the this oil content is there. It's just packing in the calories and it's it's still got more saturated fat than you need. Let's take a question from uh, Liana at twelve ten. She's wondering why her doctor told her not to stop eating dairy. So when it comes to doctors being taught about nutrition in medical school, obviously we know that there are a lot of shortcomings. So I guess this is kind of a, a two-parter for her is like, number one, where do things stand as far as what the curriculum currently says about dairy? And number two, what can we do to get this information that we're talking about today in front of more doctors? Well, it's a great question. Um, because nutrition is not yet a major part of the curriculum of any U.S. medical school, um, it's, uh, a, it's basically non-existent in many and just a very minor thing in most. Um, your average doctor doesn't even get one lecture about dairy's hazards, um, despite the fact that these are very well known. The contribution to prostate cancer, for example, is I mean, the, the evidence for it is, is, is very, very strong. And yet doctors don't counsel men to anticipate their cancer risk by avoiding dairy. Um, so doctors don't get much nutrition education about dairy. But how many commercials, dairy-funded commercials, has the average doctor been exposed to throughout their life and throughout their professional career? A huge number, um, including even CME, continuing medical education events sponsored by the dairy industry. That's something we have been fighting and including this past year. The dairy industry is out there trying to convince doctors that dairy is a great source of calcium and as opposed to all the frankly healthier calcium sources out there. So I, I just I, I really think that we've just got to continue to improve uh, medical education. So your question is how 
Um, I think waiting for medical schools to change. Um, I mean, the next ice age is going to arrive before that happens. Um, I think what we have to do, and I hope I don't sound too optimistic, Chuck. Um, I think what we have to do instead is create materials and make them enjoyable for doctors and something that works for doctors, like nutrition-oriented continuing medical education. We offer that at, at PCRM. Um, and Sarai Stancic, who's, you know, Dr. Stancic has been uh, your guest on this show um, and is our director of medical education. We have this huge amount of CME that doctors uh, take and our annual conference that you've attended and have interviewed the, the, the speakers on, uh, the International Conference on Nutrition and Education. Doctors go. It counts as medical education. They get totally pumped up and they're learning what they didn't learn in medical school. So I, I think over the short run, having this kind of continuing education is what's going to really be a game changer for them. Not just for doctors, but frankly, dietitians need some good information too. They're focusing on nutrition, but sometimes it's not exactly the best nutrition. Same for nurses, same for other health professionals. Yeah, and uh, the uh, our own conference, the International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine, back live and in person this summer, coming up in August, right here in Washington, D.C. If you're interested in attending, um, pcrm.org slash ICNM is the web address to go ahead and register for that. Couldn't it be easier? pcrm.org slash ICNM. We hope to see you there. I'll be doing some live interviews throughout the conference, so it would be great if you could stop by and say hi. And I mean, you want to talk about raising your health IQ. You're talking about three days that are going to send it into the stratosphere. It's amazing how much information gets crammed into just a 72-hour period. I get so pumped up for this conference. Let me just mention, I think it is going to be fabulous, our best one ever. Um, it's getting kicked off by Jamie, Congressman Jamie Raskin, um, who has been just all over the news ever since he was elected. But he himself has followed a healthy diet in part. Um, because he's had health issues in his own life that he's talked about, but in part because he's got a conscience and, and um, he's going to lead us off. He's going to welcome people. Rita Redberg from JAMA Internal Medicine will also welcome everybody. We've got sessions on COVID, uh, new sessions on diabetes management and universal meals are going to be unveiled. So it's going to be the biggest, best ever. There it is, pcrm.org slash ICNM. We do hope to see you there this August. Uh, but Dr. Barnard, let's continue our cheese conversation, or actually let's let's transition this now over into just a dairy alternative conversation and take a question from Terry, who is wondering whether almond milk is as healthy as soy or oat milk. Uh, yeah, almond milk is fine. It's different from soy in that it's much lower in protein. Soy's selling point is it's tasty, it, it's got good mouthfeel, it has those isoflavones that are cancer preventers. Yes, soy, soy milk and soy products reduce breast cancer risk and prostate cancer risk. Almond milk, maybe not, but it's not cow's milk, so it's a heck of a lot healthier, uh, even though it's lower in protein. Jerry, speaking of soy milk, is soy milk good for someone who has rheumatoid arthritis? Um, fine. Um, however, I, I would have one caveat, and that's people with rheumatoid arthritis very often have a trigger that they or more than one trigger for their symptoms. I'm saying um, potatoes might trigger it or dairy might trigger the symptoms. And, and it's not common, but once in a blue moon, you'll see somebody where soy protein might have been their trigger. And it doesn't mean soy is unhealthy. It just means if, if you're allergic to strawberries, you can't have strawberries. And in a rare case, soy could be one of those. How do you know? Um, the way to know is you eliminate all the common triggers and then you bring them back in your diet one at a time and see which one causes the symptoms to start. 
And by the way, speaking of the cheese trap, in the appendix of the cheese trap, I give the list of arthritis triggers there. So you just eliminate those foods and bring them back in one at a time and see where your symptoms get kicked off. Let's take a couple of questions about fat here. Uh, this one seems to get asked a lot, so I'm glad that we continue to put this information out there. Simple question from Mucha Brown at 1213. They're wondering how many grams of fat should you eat in a day? Um, the, I hope people don't worry too much about percentages and specific numbers. Um, I'll, I'll give you some, but let me first just suggest what I, I think is a good way to think about it. If you are eating the four healthy food groups, grains, and beans and vegetables and fruits and you're not adding fat because you found ways to cook without it you steam and bake things and whatever um, if that's what you're eating and nuts and seeds are only a really small part of what you're consuming then your fat content of your diet is not going to be where it is in america now which is maybe 30 35 percent for some people yours is going to be probably under 10 percent of calories that's great because that allows you to keep a healthier waistline, keeps your cholesterol down, keeps your hormones in much better balance, everything's going much better. Um, so 10% of your calories are gonna be coming from fat. But I, but I hope you don't worry too much about that number, whether it's 10 or nine or 11 or 12, or you know, somewhere in that area is gonna be fine. I want to take a quick second to say hi to So Mindful, who is uh, sneaking us in at work right now, uh, probably ducked down at their cubicle, headphones in, listening to the, the exam room live here on Facebook and YouTube. So thanks for being here. And also Judith tuning in today from Jamaica. That's awesome. Thank you both so very much for being here. Um, this is a popular holdover from last uh, show as well. It's a question from Pamela, and she is wondering, what are some good options, Dr. Barnard, for non-stick non-toxic cookware? Oh, great, great question. And this has been really controversial because back in the 70s, um, Teflon was becoming really popular. And um, at that time, the products, they really hadn't quite bonded it properly to the to the, the fry pans. And after a while, people would be scraping off little chunks of the Teflon into their foods. And, and you know, I, I think it kind of earned a not very good reputation. However, times have changed. Um, and so the, the concern then became that um, as the Teflon was heated, and, and Teflon is nonstick, and it's pretty much inert in normal settings, but um, with initial heating, it will give off some toxic fumes. Um, but those are mostly burned off nowadays in the manufacturing process. If you compare a pan from the 70s and a pan from today, they're just completely different. So my own sense is that the current pans are fine, healthy and dramatically better than cooking with oil. Um, but I got a, I've got a, a couple of tips. One is, um, uh, well, a couple of brands. Um, Made In is a brand. If you uh, go on their website, you can buy a really good nonstick pan. And one of the things I like about Made In is that the layer under the Teflon is not aluminum. You want to avoid aluminum coming in touch with your food because aluminum is linked to neurological damage and Alzheimer's. The evidence is, is still being weighed by scientists. It's, it's, I think there's good reason to be controversial about it, but don't be in the experimental group. Just avoid aluminum. So the made-in brand is one that, that has gotten attention because the, the layer under the nonstick is steel. And there's aluminum as a sandwich down, you know, a couple of layers down, but it, the, that's a good brand. Uh, Demeyer is another one that has had some very good pans, uh, but all of these uh, brands will change their what they're offering 
and so they they do drift from bit to bit. Um, let me mention um, when you get your pan home, a couple things. Um, clean it up really well, and you already know not to use metal implements on your nonstick pan because you're going to end up scraping it off. So you got to use pl plastic utensils and do that. Don't thermo shock it. Um, let it heat gradually and never heat a nonstick pan to really just huge high temperatures. There you will degrade it. So low and moderate temperatures are good. And then when you're done cooking, don't do what a lot of people do, which is throw it in the sink and turn on the cold water because you're just shocking this, this, uh, this nonstick surface that's trying to help you. Let it, let it cool down kind of gradually. Um, and when you um, go to clean it, don't use a Brillo pad. Be gentle. Use just a regular sponge. Dry it off. Stack it up with a towel on top. And that is going to baby your cookware and it's going to love you back. Man, I'm going to isolate that last three minutes. And anytime the question comes up about cookware on the show, I'm just going to play back what it was <laughs> you just said. That was the definitive answer, Dr. Barnard. That was fantastic. Um, follow-up question from Dylan, not just about what it was you just said, but also a follow-up from last week where the conversation about aluminum crept up. And he's wondering whether the same thing can be said for aluminum foil that you were just mentioning with aluminum cookware. Yeah. The human body has no use for aluminum. You need iron, you need copper. There, there are some metals that your body uses as cofactors for enzymes and other things. Aluminum is not one of them. If you ingest aluminum in food, your body tries to get rid of it. And in industrial accidents, aluminum uh, exposures are clear-cut neurotoxins. So avoid it. Um, so you get some aluminum foil. If you wrap a sandwich in aluminum foil, no problem. But what if you got, say, an aluminum container with uh, the spaghetti left over from an Italian restaurant and you covered aluminum foil on the top and then the acids in the food are directly in touch with that aluminum and they start to dissolve it and the aluminum's getting in your food. So, so don't do that. That's a, you want to use cardboard, you want to use even plastic or something like that, or use a, like a plastic reusable container. Those are better choices for food storage. Edith at 1217, kicking us back to dairy. Edith is wondering if you have issues digesting milk, will you also have identical reactions when you eat cheese and yogurt? Um, if there are two reasons why milk can be a digestive problem. Uh, one problem is milk allergy, where the proteins in it are sending you into conniptions. Not very, uh, not very common in adults, but it can happen. And if you're allergic to cow's milk, you're going to be allergic also to anything that's made from it, um, like yogurt or like cheese. The more common issue, though, is not an allergy and it's not a reaction to the protein. It's lactose. It's reacting to lactose, where this is Mother Nature's way of saying you're not a baby anymore. And when you were a little newborn, you had enzymes in your digestive tract to break apart the lactose sugar that gives that faint sweetness to milk. Went down your digestive tract, the lactase enzymes break apart the lactose sugar and you absorb the little tiny sugars that break out of it. Um, after the age of weaning, the normal sequence for humans and all mammals is to lose those enzymes. They go away because you're not breastfeeding anymore. Um, a mutation occurred in some mostly white populations um, some thousands of years ago that caused these enzymes to persist longer in life. So you might be a 40 year old 
person and you're still digesting milk like a baby. Uh, but among every other racial and ethnic group, um, the rule is really for those enzymes to dissipate. And so you drink a glass of milk and you get a bubbly stomach from it or, or worse, you feel terrible. Um, and that's, that's not a disease, that's natural. Um, but with, when, you make, when you turn milk into yogurt, the um, cultures typically break the sugar apart. And when it's turned into cheese, the sugars are removed. So they are more digestible. That makes them all the much worse because you're not getting nature's warning sign to not eat this stuff. Um, cheese is, is, if it were any worse, it'd be Vaseline. I mean, it's a, it's a huge contributor to sodium. I'm, I'm serious. Sodium, cholesterol, saturated fat, it is numero uno in, in those areas. So you don't want to go near it. And same with yogurt. Uh, great advertising, terrible food. Uh, you don't need it. Uh, dairy products are linked to so many health issues. Uh, the top of the list is cancer, but other things too. So steer clear of it. Lactose intolerance is not a disease. It is a warning sign that you are too old to be breastfeeding. So skip the dairy. You want to open some eyes here and just lay out the facts, just some cold, hard facts. I love this discussion. I love this question from Jesse at 1226. Jesse is wondering, why is the dairy industry subsidized by the government and how can we change this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's been going on for decades and, and not just here in the U.S., but but this has been happening in other countries, too, where uh, U.S. government uh, programs promote dairy um, and have an organized uh, promotional programs of doing research to try to make dairy look good, doing specific promotional activities for it and specific laws, putting dairy into schools. And I'm not going to make this up. There is a U.S. federal law that a kid 16 year old kid uh in the lunch line at school bringing his tray along and the the uh food service person says here's your here's your carton of milk and he says i can't have that i, I got lactose intolerance you know ever since i was eight years old i can't i can't drink cow's milk the food service worker cannot by law give him an alternative she can't say oh here's some almond milk instead here's some soy milk instead here's some she by law she cannot do that unless the student produces a note saying that he's got a disability or a medical condition. And it's obviously wrong. It's out completely outdated science. And I'm going to say it's racist uh, because you're talking about kids, African-American kids, Asian kids, uh, Hispanic kids who want something they can digest, but they're not allowed to have it. Um, how do we change this? Um, we speak up. We, we need to let, obviously let our, our representatives in Congress know. And you're not just um, shouting down a well because our lobbyists, the PCRM lobbyists, are pushing to get rid of these outdated laws right now. And to the extent that you can support that by getting your members of Congress on board, please do. Uh, do sign up for our action alerts. We'll let you know how you can help. The dietary guidelines are revised every five years. We are central to that process. And so there's a role that everybody can play. And we're, we're gradually winning. We're not winning fast enough, but we are winning and we're going to work together. We'll get over the finish line. 
And guys, as a former reporter, both with NBC and CBS, credibility to me is everything. And when I first learned of this government connection with Derry, I was skeptical. And then I was pointed to just a trove of documents that were obtained by the Freedom of Information Act that were published by the New York Times. And it shows this huge, huge, huge conversations between all of these major restaurants. We're talking Domino's, Wendy's, Pizza Hut, you name the fast food restaurant restaurant, they are in bed with what is called Dairy Management Inc. And so you have this government connection that is really steering these major cheese campaigns that you see advertised throughout the year. You know, I think back to what was it? One of the big ones, Dr. Barnard, was the summer of cheese. I believe that that was a Wendy's campaign. We've seen these campaigns with McDonald's. We've seen them with Burger King. We've seen them with uh, Wendy's. We've seen them with just about all the major uh, fast food chains. And I could show you shockingly, contracts between the U.S. government and the fast food chain specifically to promote cheese. Um, they do it. Why do they do it? Because they have to. The U.S. federal law says the government has to promote American agricultural products and cheese is at their top of the list, unfortunately. All right. I, I promise you this. Uh, as soon as the show has ended, I will tweet out a link from at Chuck Carroll WLC to that New York Times trove of documents that I was just referencing. It is mind blowing. If you want to kill at least a few hours just looking through some of these documents, these contracts, uh, these campaigns that we were just talking about. I mean, just get ready to go down one crazy rabbit hole that is all 100 percent true. Um, but we do have a couple of minutes left. I want to bounce around, still talk about a couple of other things, take a few other questions. Uh, importantly, one here from Liana on a different topic altogether, but she's on a health journey. So I really want to get to this one, Dr. Barnard. At 1225, she's wondering how fast can someone come off of metformin once their blood sugar has stabilized? Oh, great question. Um, it, it's really between you and your doctor, but metformin is the most common drug used for type 2 diabetes. And for, in some cases, doctors stop it immediately. Um, the person is, on, they have type 2 diabetes, they've done a vegan diet, their weight's coming down, their blood sugar's coming down. There are some doctors who stop it right away. And that's totally defensible. There are others who say metformin is a pretty mild drug. It's not going to drive into hypoglycemia. So just stick with it for a while and they keep people on it for a longer period of time. It's between you and your doctor, but um, many doctors uh, end it quite soon. Popular question here from Joanne at 1229. Are vegan foods such as uh, vegan burgers and vegan chicken that uh, are plant-based, are they as healthy as other options? Well, the vegan substitute for a burger or vegan substitute for bacon or whatever is always better than the one it replaces. And when you're looking at the specific brands, um, pick the vegan option that is lowest in saturated fat. You'll see they vary quite a lot. Impossible is pretty high, not as high as the meat one, but it's high. So you might find that there are better choices than that. So choose the ones that are lowest in saturated fat. They're, they're going to be the best for you. And let's see here, Blue Jay Jitsu. This is a fascinating question. We were talking earlier in the show about cholesterol. I've never heard this question. Maybe you can clear up the confusion. Could a whole food plant-based diet cause cholesterol to go up initially when a person begins eating that way because of a breakdown of plaque in the arteries? Uh, no, uh, it, it, your cholesterol can bounce around and it could momentarily be higher, but it's not, not from that reason. Um, What's happening in your plaques is, is that the, the, the plaques, the little bumps in the artery walls, they shrink fairly gradually, and it's not going to have an appreciable effect on your, on your cholesterol level. But what will happen, two things. Um, one is cholesterol just goes up and down. 
it based on the, the, the fiber content to your diet. If it's a little bit lower, you're not removing the cholesterol as well. If it's a little higher, you're moving more rapidly. And there are other things too. The other piece of this is if you happen to have, say, some peanut butter, and you happen to pick a brand that has palm oil in it. Well, palm oil's got saturated fat in it. Or let's say you had the vegan carrot cake that was made with coconut oil. It's not as bad as butter, but it's kind of close. So that'll raise your cholesterol level too. But if you avoid those two fats, the coconut oil, the palm oil, you're going to see that that bouncing cholesterol number is going to bounce down and down and down and down and down. Final question here today. Let's take one from an Instagram viewer wants to know, could a low fat whole food plant-based diet reverse diabetic gastroparesis? I hope so. Um, let me be a little bit um, coy on that. Uh, what we're talking about here is that you know that when you have diabetes, the high blood sugar affects not just your, your the amount, it, it, it affects your whole body. It doesn't affect just your heart. It affects your eyes, it affects your kidneys, and it affects the nerves. And that's called neuropathy. And people experience this with numbness in their feet or sometimes unusual sensations, pain, uh, pins and needles, a stabbing sensation. But you have nerves in your gut as well, and you have nerves in your stomach. And those nerves can be affected too. And gastroparesis means that your, your stomach just isn't emptying the normal way. So you feel full all the time. you got all kinds of issues. Uh, probably about maybe 10 or 15 years ago, our research team did a research study on a low-fat uh, vegan diet for neuropathy. And you know what we found? People got better. They got better fast. Um, this was aiming at peripheral neuropathy, the pain uh, and the numbness in their feet in particular. But because they got better, we were hypothesizing that the autonomic neuropathy, which is what you're talking about, would also get better. That has never been tested. So the answer is do the diet, do it all the way, 100% vegan, keep oils really low, keep your doctor's appointment and be monitored by your doctor. There are other treatments for gastroparesis that you'll want to access, but let the diet do its magic. It's the most powerful medicine you've got. Let's go ahead and close up the doctor's mailbag for today. If we didn't get to your question, I promise you, just as we did with every other show, we're going to save it and do our best to get you an answer on an upcoming episode. But Dr. Barnard, unless you've been living under the rock, I mean, uh, under a rock, not Dwayne Johnson, unless you've been living <laughs> under a rock, uh, you, you undoubtedly heard of the retirement of perhaps the greatest football player to ever play the game, and that is Tom Brady. And the thing about Tom Brady that has really captivated so many who are nutrition-minded, and a lot of us here in the plant-based community as well, is everything that he has been able to do to put forward um, the idea that taking care of yourself, including eating that healthy diet, can really propel you forward as an athlete. Yeah, um, Tom Brady um, has never hid the fact that he thought you got to fuel yourself in the right way. And so he started with, with a mostly vegan diet. I don't think it was entirely vegan, but it was mostly vegan, very down on dairy, <laughs> you know, which um, some of the sponsors would say, you know, don't you want to promote a little cheese or a little yogurt or something like that? And this was not his thing. He was very much against it. Uh, very high uh, in plant-based foods, vegetables, and that kind of thing. And, and promoted this uh, to a great degree. And, and by the way, it was not just Tom Brady. Um, uh, other athletes have done the same thing. Lewis Hamilton, of course, whom we talked about here before. Um, if Brady is the greatest football player of all time or greatest quarterback, 
uh, Lewis Hamilton is clearly the greatest Formula One driver in in history, the winningest and and strongest, and, and has been clearly vegan for a long period of time. And and even Novak Djokovic, who is by many many people regard him as the greatest tennis player who ever lived. Um, say what you want to about his politics. And he certainly engendered a lot of controversy, understandably. But he is not only following a plant-based diet, but he even started a vegan restaurant uh, called Ecvita um, and was really promoting it. And, and what all of these have in common, um, you need a certain amount of power, um, whether it's throwing that ball or wrenching that steering wheel or, or hitting the ball over the net. Um, you also need extremely fast reflexes to respond to what is happening in front of you. Um, so you need good mental clarity. And the, the final thing you need is um, staying power and recovery for your long game. Um, and that's what all these people kind of have in common is, wow, these are not just flash in the pan, a couple of good seasons and they're out. These are people who year after year after year stay healthy, they perform. And so, um, you know, when Game Changers, the movie, uh, came out that the point was made, this is a healthy diet, not just for right now, but this is the diet that helps you train. This is the diet that helps you last. This is the diet that helps you think, um, because it's not filled with all that saturated fat that <laughs> reduces the oxygenation to your brain. So, um, anyway, my hat is off to Tom Brady. Um, I think he's, he did a, um, uh, a good job in letting people know that nutrition matters. Um, and I'm sure that if he spent another 20 years in the NFL, he'd probably be full on vegan and he'd probably be teaching one of our food for life classes here as well. So maybe that'll happen later. And the thing about Tom Brady is, you know, covering the NFL as I did for a number of years, it was just a few years ago, he played a game here in Washington. He was still with the New England Patriots at the time. But after the game, I remember being at the press conference, like right in the front row when he was talking. And even though he was in his 40s already by that point, he looked like he was in his 20s. I mean, this guy truly did discover the fountain of youth. It was just incredible um, just to be able to chat with him a little bit and and pick his brain and, and you know, obviously get his thoughts on the game that day. But just it, it was just incredible because you have other guys who are coming in, you know, rookies or guys that have only been in the league two or three years. They already look like they're in their 40s. And here's Tom just kind of turning back the hands of time. Just just remarkable. So um, it, it it is really been fantastic to watch what he's been able to do in the game for the past 22 seasons. Um, just been a, a lot of fun. And the game, you know, as a football fan, Dr. Barnard, I will tell you, it will not be the same without him in it. I mean, hands down, what's football without Tom Brady? I don't know. We haven't had to answer that question for 22 years, you know? Well, yes, but you know, his legacy is not just in football. His legacy is for people to think, all right, what about food? And then once people start thinking about it for performance, they also start thinking about it for long-term health. Um, they start thinking about it for the environment, for the animals, for ethical reasons. All that's good. Um, by the way, um, you mentioned how his youthful appearance. You know, um, Scott Jurek, uh, greatest long-term, long-distance runner ever. Um, and if you look at him, you know, he's, I mean, he runs this 100 miles at a stretch or more. And you'd think, oh, he'd be all wizened and so forth. Well, he's been an outspoken vegan for a long period of time, healthiest diet. He's got skin like a baby. <laughs> it's, it's, um, so anyway, we can learn a, a few things from these guys. And, and if that translates into better health and a kinder world, then that's all to the good. But that focus on nutrition, obviously not just limited to Tom Brady in the NFL. Um, 
just next week, as a matter of fact, let me go ahead and, and break some news here. Coming up next week uh, on the show, I'm going to be joined by a dietitian uh, who works in the NFL. She's a performance chef for a team who made the playoffs this year. And no, it is not the Tennessee Titans that you've heard about in the Game Changers that get so often referenced. No, no, this is a completely different playoff team. And she's going to tell me all about, she's going to tell us all about all of the work that she's doing and how a lot of the players now are hyper-focusing on their nutrition and how you have some who are mostly plant-based, you have some who are completely plant-based, and then you have some even in the front office of the team who are looking at what these players are eating. They're even circling down to the cafeteria while the players are out of practice. They're like, hey, what, what was he eating today? What can that do for me? So it really is spreading uh, from team to team, player to player. Uh, everybody's kind of schooling themselves up on nutrition. So it's it's really an exciting thing. And so for our Super Bowl show next Monday, right back here on Facebook and YouTube, and then Tuesday on the podcast, we're going to be diving into that uh, with this dietitian. Cannot wait to do that. And uh, Dr. Barnard, she's also coming uh, armed with uh, some fun, easy plant-based Super Bowl game recipes for us to share. Don't forget, you can join us for The Exam Room Live every Wednesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Join us on Facebook and on YouTube, and that is where experts like Dr. Barnard can answer your questions in real time. And every show, we get to as many as we possibly can. And even though we've previously covered topics like cheese, I'm telling you, there has never been an episode in the hundreds that we have done where we have not still discovered something new and raised our health IQ even just a little bit higher. And I suspect your experience will be much the same. So join us live every Wednesday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on YouTube and on Facebook. But if you can't make it live, no worries. You can also send me your questions ahead of time. I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC. And if you are living in the Bonita Springs or Naples area of Florida, I will be speaking at the Southwest Florida Veg Fest on February 13th. That is Super Bowl Sunday. I'm so excited about this. And my special guest will be Dr. Mickey Witt. She is a neuroscientist and professor at the University of Miami. And together, we will be doing a scientific examination of the brain of someone who is struggling with their weight. So in this case, we will be walking through my journey, literally going inside my mind and learning why it is so hard, not just for me to lose weight, but literally anyone to lose weight. We will learn how the brain sabotages our attempts to trim down and get healthy, and more importantly, how we can overcome that sabotage. So we will be teaching you as I walk you through my health journey, beginning from my time as a young child. We're talking about three years old, all the way up to now, and how my brain literally became rewired by losing 280 pounds. And your brain can also become rewired if you are struggling with your weight. So this is powerful science showing that even though, even though this is how powerful this addiction is, even though someone knows they're eating themselves to death, they still will choose the drive-through instead of choosing to live. Literally gambling that a hamburger and fries won't take them out before the next sunrise. So science and a little bit of hope coming up at the Southwest Florida Veg Fest on Super Bowl Sunday, February 13th in Bonita Springs, Florida. I would love to see you there. 
Now, at the top of the show, I told you about a new study that has some people thinking twice about the role that meat may have played in human evolution. And for those epic and historical details, we head down to the exam room news desk. It turns out that meat was not the driving factor for human brain development throughout evolution. Those are the findings of a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. The study analyzes archaeological data from sites in eastern Africa, finding that meat consumption among early man did not increase over time. Still, many to date believe that meat is a driving factor for anatomical changes for early Homo erectus, but instead, this myth-busting study finds other factors are responsible for the growth in the size of humans, as well as other physical and behavioral changes, including brain development. A link to the study can be found right now in the episode notes. And this is something that Dr. Barnard and I were talking about recently on another show, not too terribly long ago. The early man and meat myth. And what these archaeological digs are unearthing literally is more and more evidence that man was not necessarily always a meat eater. And even if there was some meat in the diet, I don't think that anyone can argue that it is anywhere near the amount of meat the typical person is eating today fascinating science. I really do hope that you get an opportunity to check out this study. And if you have not already subscribed to the exam room by the Physicians Committee, please do that right now. Leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or on Spotify, wherever it is you get your show, because every new subscription and five-star rating helps someone who needs this potentially life-saving information, helps them find it, gets it right at their fingertips. So if you could take a moment to do that right now, we would greatly appreciate it. And before we go today, I wanted to tell you about some other big guests coming up in addition to the woman who is taking the NFL by storm, teaching the players about the benefits of plant-based nutrition. And again, no, we're not talking about anyone from the Tennessee Titans. So coming up next week, in addition to her interview, we will also be joined by Dr. Will Bolsowitz. He will be back in the house making a house call. So get your gut health questions ready. Send them to me ahead of time again on Twitter and Instagram at Chuck Carroll WLC or join us live Wednesday, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Facebook and on YouTube. But for today, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. Neil Barnard for joining us and helping to raise our health IQ. And for everyone at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based.